Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. With God's help, if you would give your attention to the reading of his word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, I pray that today you would make us hungry that you would make us hungry for this heavenly food, for Jesus, who is the bread from heaven. Father, our hearts are constantly bombarded with a, a barrage of messages and words. What we need is to hear from you. What we need is to be taught by you, instructed from, uh, the, by the Spirit from your word. And so we pray that you would do just this, that you would take your word and speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would send the Spirit in its fullness to illuminate the truth to our hearts and that you would give us ears to hear, that we would respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the time that it takes to preach this sermon today, more than 8,000 people around the world will die. They will 
leave this life and slip into eternity. By the time this day is over, more than 160,000 people will die. Every single one of them will, at the last, go to one of two places, either to heaven, to eternal bliss in the presence of the Lord, or to hell, to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There are few men alive who think that they will find themselves in that latter place, who believe that they will find themselves at the last in hell. And yet that is in spite of what Jesus says, that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. We have in our text today here a man who was shocked to discover he did not find it. He did not find eternal life. Luke has been chronicling for us uh, Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees, people he has described in, in, in various ways as encumbered with the world. Most recently, we see that they are lovers of money. You can read that in verse 14. Uh, if you go back just a verse before that, verse 13, you find Jesus's words where he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Well, here we happen upon a man who has done uh, just that. He has spent his life trying to serve two masters, and it hasn't worked. He's wound up serving money. He's a rich man. That in itself is not, it's not the big problem he is facing. The thing that condemns this man isn't that he is rich and other people are poor. Brothers and sisters, there are poor people who are in hell. There are rich people who are in heaven. The thing that condemns this man is not that he is rich, but the place that his riches occupy in his heart, as we come to see in this passage. The problem, as many have said before, wasn't that this man had money, but that his money had him. It was his idol, is what he lived for. Jesus gives us a description of his earthly lot. He says that he was a rich man. The text goes on to show us just how much uh, this was the case. This man, just uh, he, he wasn't just upper class. He's what we call upper crust. He is way up there in terms of the resources he has at his disposal. He is clothed in purple. Purple fabric, fabric was made in that day from crushed sea snails. It was uh, fabulously expensive to, to purchase. Uh, it is still made in some parts of the world, like Lebanon today. Uh, it, it required dangerous free diving to, to get those shells uh, to crush and to make the dye, to make the fabric. So it was the sort of thing where if you were to, to wear this color out and about, you were a walking advertisement. It was like you were broadcasting to the world how much money you had. You're flaunting it. 
It says he even wore fine linen. That's a reference to his undergarments. So you can imagine Jesus saying almost with a wry smile here, even his underwear was the best money could possibly buy. I have said this before. Sometimes you get the sense when you read Jesus's parables that you're being set up right at the very beginning. And this is one of them. He feasted sumptuously every day. In the parable of the prodigal son, uh, the father throws a feast upon the return of his son, and, and rightly so. He killed the fattened calf, and they feasted here. It's the same word here, except you notice what is different. Uh, feasting here isn't anything extraordinary. It is his everyday fare. It's what he has all of the time. This is commonplace for this man. So you have this picture of worldly decadence. He has lived his life in absolute luxury. This is a man who has everything you could ever want out of this world, everything you could hope to find in this life. And then you come to Lazarus, and you see Lazarus's earthly lot. And the very same elements are included by Christ in the description of Lazarus. As it relates to his economic condition, condition, he lives in abject poverty. He is covered not with purple and fine linen, but loathsome sores. Then you have his home, if you can call it that. All we know is that he has been laid at the gate of this rich man. That seems to suggest to us that he is perhaps crippled, or he's at least in such a state that he can do little more than uh, be dumped outside of of the the mansion of someone more well-to-do in the hopes that uh, some scraps would fall from that man, Uh, his table. You see the food mentioned. He desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, the the kind of things that, that dogs would normally scavenge. Well, dogs are here, but they're not scavenging uh, the food from the rich man's table. They're outside the gate also, and they're looking, licking the wounds off this man. Now, children, uh, these are not friendly, uh, domesticated Labradors that are licking this man. These are dangerous, a wild beast. And uh, you you see here, he can't do anything about it because of his predicament, because of his situation. He has has simply to endure uh, the affliction and the, the lot that he has been assigned. So this is truly a miserable, pitiful scene, looking at everything Uh, that you can observe. Some might look at this man's circumstances and come to the conclusion that he would be better off dead than alive. He is in the worst possible condition a man could find himself in. He can't do anything for himself. He can do nothing else but look up to God in dependence on the Lord, in dependence on the mercy of God. And God has not forgotten him. In fact, one thing that the poor man has going for him, he has a name. Did you notice that? He has a name. 
And that may signal to us that over, though overlooked by man, God has not overlooked him. God knows who this man is. He's Lazarus, a name that means God has helped. He has a name. Not so for the rich man. The rich man is going to remain nameless throughout the whole story. And maybe that gives us an opportunity. Maybe it gives people like the Pharisees or people who are like the Pharisees and like the rich man to more easily identify themselves with this rich man than they otherwise would have if he was named in the story. Whatever the case, you have this great contrast, this great uh, juxtaposition between these two men's earthly lots. Now, without any warning, the poor man dies. And to our surprise, he is carried by the angels uh, to, to Abraham's side, literally to Abraham's bosom. Now, we have little understanding of this in our Western society, but go uh, to the Middle East, go even to some places of, of Europe, and you'll find grown men walking down the street with their arms uh, locked together, uh, arm in arm. You'll, you'll find grown men uh, sharing warm embraces and uh, kisses on the cheek. That's the kind of picture uh, you have here between Lazarus and Abraham. And John chapter 13, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, John the apostle, he laid his head on Jesus's breast as they reclined at table. Well, so also here, Abraham's bosom paints this picture of intimacy and fellowship and blessing and rest. Jesus talks about this. He talks about the joy of eternity, the joy of perfect spiritual fellowship with the Lord. And, and not only that, but with one another in Matthew chapter 8, where he says that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's what you have here. This poor, miserable, afflicted, wretched man, he dies. He's gathered to his fathers. But then in the blink of an eye, Lazarus goes from that place. He goes from that place of suffering and isolation and pain to a place of peace, a place of fellowship, a place of favor. He experiences what the book of Revelation says, the, the former things have passed away. They're all over. They have passed away. Now, the rich man also dies. For all that his money was able to afford him in this life, he still meets the same end as Lazarus. His wealth was able to secure a lot of things for him in this world. It was able to, to, to provide him with many luxuries, many desirable things, but it is unable to hold back the sting of death. Now, the description of his death is just as short and as curt as it is with Lazarus, because the important thing isn't that he dies, but what happens after he dies. It's not the experience of death itself 
But what happens afterwards? Now, what do we find there? The rich man, he is carried not by ministering angels to the bosom of Abraham, but to a place of everlasting torment. And that's how verse 23 describes it. It says that he was in Hades, being in torment. So while Lazarus is at Abraham's side, the rich man is suffering what we describe as eternal conscious torment. He is experiencing first John what uh, first place what uh, John the Baptist described would come in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You remember uh, John the Baptist's words from chapter 3 talking about the ministry of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, that's Lazarus, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the rich man's lot. So this is now the rich man's eternal lot. What 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 describes as the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Here it's described as him being in Hades. It's the New Testament equivalent of uh, the word Sheol in the, in the Old Testament. This is what the Bible describes as a kind of holding cell for the unrighteous dead who are waiting for the day of judgment. The Bible divides further Hades into two places, two further compartments. One is Gehenna, that is for mankind. And then you have Tartarus, a place where some demons have been locked away. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about this. God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell, the Greek word there is Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The Bible tells us that eventually Hades itself will be cast into the lake of fire, what we typically think of as hell. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I give you this quick sketch uh, of, of the language that the Bible uses, but I want to also uh, be quick to add that it is not the purpose of this parable to sketch out in fine detail a theology of the afterlife, either what we would uh, describe as the intermediate state, that time uh, between when we die and our bodies are laid in the ground and our souls are present with the Lord. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This text does not set out to describe the time between death 
and the resurrection of our bodies or what the new heavens and new earth looks like in detail. Other texts deal with those sorts of things. This is a parable. So it is not meant to give us a map of the afterlife, but to teach us how to live today in view of what the life to come is to, is to look like. Now, for the sake of this lesson, the rich man and, the, and Lazarus are described as being able to see each other, and yet they remain separated by this great distance. Look at verse 23, if you would. Uh, it says of uh, the rich man, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This, brothers and sisters, is where this rich man, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire in hell, becomes an evangelist to us. I want to show you what I mean by that. He goes on and makes three different appeals to Abraham, and each of them has a lesson for us. Each of them teaches us how we are to think about the life that we live today, about the life that is to come, and the relationship between the two. First, he makes an appeal for relief in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He begs that Lazarus might be sent just to let a few drops of water drip off the end of his finger to bring some relief from the pain that he is experiencing there in Hades. Anything that might be done just to give him a moment of respite, anything that might be done just to ameliorate his suffering for just the briefest of moments would be worth it. He begs for it. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here that are so vital to consider. First of all, he calls Abraham his father. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. That gives you an indication here that this is a religious man. This is a religious man who finds himself in the fire of hell. He is a religious man with a divided heart. He is exactly the kind of person that Jesus describes in verse 13, that man we talked about who is trying to do what Jesus says is impossible to do, trying to serve two masters, when in reality he hated the one, He hated the God of Abraham, and he loved the other, his riches. He was devoted to the one, to mammon, and he despised the other, the only one worthy of his adoration and his love and his devotion and his affection. There's added irony here in that Abraham's very name is synonymous in the Bible with hospitality. Look at Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Abraham didn't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, thereby entertaining even angels unawares. 
Well, if this rich man is indeed Abraham's son, he should do as Abraham did. To those in Christ's day who said, Abraham is our father, Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. It's the same principle, beloved, here. It's the same principle. It's a matter of identity. Do you call God your father? Is Christ your treasure? If that's true, it will be reflected. It will be reflected in the way that you live. It will be reflected in the works that you do. It will be reflected in your dealings with other men. It will be reflected in the way you steward your earthly treasure for the glory of God because he is your true and greater treasure. He is the one you want to please. Deuteronomy 24 gives a number of examples of this sort of thing. I'll just give you a couple. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 12. When you make a loan to a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. That is to say, don't sleep in the jacket that he gives you as a pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before Yahweh your God. 24 and verse 17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. You see what he's saying there? Have you experienced the redeeming power of God's love, bear witness to that in your life, with your possessions, in your giving, by preferring one another in love, by giving away what you cannot keep anyway. You see the basis here. It is not a do this so you can earn my favor kind of thing, but rather a if you have come under the umbrella of my favor, if you know what it is to be an object of my redeeming love, then go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And of course, we, we know that Jesus says that it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. Those who get their attachment uh, to Abraham, not by natural descent, uh, but by way of faith, by trusting in the God of Abraham. That is who the true sons of Abraham really are. Paul says in Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. As much as that is true, if I am Christ. That's going to be reflected in the way I live. It's going to be reflected in my dealings with men. Does my life evince a true knowledge of the Lord's saving love toward me? That is one of the big questions that is raised by this text. Is God's generosity as it has been made manifest in the good news of the gospel, in the work of his grace, is that reflected in my dealings with other, other men? What needy people we are, 
What a gracious and generous God, though, that we have. What good news the gospel has brought to our souls. Well, now the question comes. Do our souls, do our lives, do our words, do our actions, do they give witness to that? Do they, do, do they evidence the good news of the gospel at work in our hearts? The rich man's neglect of the poor shows that he has rejected the redemption of God. It shows that he has rejected the, the good news of the gospel that brings good news to the poor and to the disenfranchised. He is not sentenced to everlasting torment because he is rich, but because of the place those riches have in his heart, how he has regarded them throughout his life, and now it is being measured back to him. Notice as well that not only does he know Abraham's name, but he also knows Lazarus's name. That only adds to his guilt. It makes it clear that his treatment of Lazarus in his earthly life wasn't an oversight. It wasn't just carelessness on his part. He knows his name. He has knowingly trampled over the needy and the downtrodden. What's more, now he wants Lazarus to render him aid. And you you can see how he still regards him. He still thinks of Lazarus as an errand boy. Even from hell, he looks at people in Lazarus' position as those who are at his beck and call. He demands that mercy be shown him from the hand of one to whom he's never shown mercy. So brothers and sisters, don't think that this is repentance that you're seeing on the part of this man from hell. Don't think that when he cries out for relief that there is true heartfelt remorse within him. Don't think that people will be suddenly overwhelmed by godly sorrow in the eternal state. People will be as hardened and as recalcitrant then as they were now. Abraham answers him. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Isn't it interesting that Abraham calls him child here? There are some so-called sons of Abraham who will not find themselves in paradise. There are some in this world today who outwardly identify themselves as Christians who will not have a home in heaven. There are some very religious people who will find themselves at the last in hell. That phrase, you in your lifetime, It's an important phrase here. The psalmist talks about men of this world whose portion is in this life. David says, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. In other words, the, the riches that they delight in 
in this life are all left behind when they die. The treasure that they so dearly love in this life is the only treasure that they will ever know. James talks about this in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So you have lived your whole life for yourself. As you sit at your feasting tables, it's like with every bite you take, it's, it's like the, the pig is being fattened for slaughter. The rich man had a life of comfort and ease and wealth on earth, but torment, fire, and anguish and hell. Lazarus, on the other hand, he knew hunger, poverty, and affliction in this life, but joy, fullness, comfort in the life that is to come. You see this great reversal uh, when it says that Lazarus is comforted. That is in what we call the divine passive. It means that God is the one doing the comforting here. The God of all comfort is the one personally ministering to Lazarus. The blessings and and woes as well of of chapter 6, you remember the Beatitudes there, they have come to fulfillment. And each of these men can personally testify to the veracity of Christ's words, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And to the everlasting shame of the other, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This is one of Luke's favorite themes to emphasize in this orderly account he has set out to give, this reversal that Christ Arrival into the world signals for those who um, put their arms around him, who, who trust in his name for that, that wonderful reversal to the, to the poor. Uh, you remember how Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, me of all people and holy is his name. 
that reversal that his arrival brings and will bring to its consummation at his return. The rich man returns to the dust, and that was the end of his feasting. The poor man dies, and that was the beginning. It was the beginning of everlasting feasting. I ask you today, what are your hopes set on? Where's your treasure? Every one of us has one. Uh, This is just another way of talking about what we worship, what we love, what we delight in. What does your mind fly to? What do you dream about? Is it for things in this life? Or is it for the one who died that he might bring you to God? Pressing on to verse 26, Abraham marshals yet another reason why the rich man's appeal for relief cannot be granted. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Here is yet another irony. In this uh, parable, previously there stood a gate between the two that could have been opened, uh, through which the rich man could have intervened on Lazarus's behalf. Now there stands a great chasm which cannot be traversed. Their respective positions have been dramatically altered, but one thing remains the same. There's no exchange between the two. A great chasm has been fixed. Those may be the weightiest words in this whole parable. There is an impassable, unbridgeable gulf between heaven and hell in which in this context, this serves to drive home this point. There are no second chances. There are no second chances. All that the gospel holds out to us now, that blessed news that provision has been made, that glorious hope that a way has been opened up in Christ Jesus, that opportunity through his shed blood has been afforded to sinners, that the great divide between God and man can now be crossed through the cross of Jesus Christ. There will be a day when that hope no longer remains. A great chasm has been fixed. Hell has no court of appeal. There is no hope of release. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, Paul says, while we have the opportunity, we persuade men. That is why we are so passionate about subjects such as this. The love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, those that live might no longer live for themselves, but for the the sake of those of, of him who for their sake died and was raised. 
you may not ever have an opportunity again to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him while it is still today. Well, this rich man is still not satisfied. The man who is condemned to hell will never be satisfied. He will never be satisfied with the judgment he has received. He will rail against the judgment of God for all of eternity in the same way that he rejects the judgment of God in this life. The judgment that the word of God has already issued against sinful men. This man thinks, well, if I can't do anything about my condition, let's talk about my family. And he makes his second appeal, his second plea, verse 27. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Warn them of the wrath that is to come. Warn them of what this place is like. Warn them of what the fires of Hades is like. Now again, many jump to the conclusion here that he's beginning to show some indication of a change of heart. That is not the case. Uh, This should not be construed that way. Notice what is uh, conspicuously absent. Notice what is missing. There is no confession. There is no confession of sin. There is no plea for forgiveness. Even here, uh, his circle of concern relates only to his own family. Moreover, he suggests by the nature of his appeal that he had not received sufficient warning himself. That the problem he was facing, the reason that caused him to be in the place that he was, what what led him to be in the fires of Hades wasn't sin on his part, but a lack of revelation on God's. What his brothers need, he thinks, is more information, a clearer testimony, a better witness. So you see, church, how he indicts the Lord by what he says. The onus of responsibility in his mind lies with the Lord and not himself. This is a sad scene. It's a pitiful scene, but it isn't one marked by brokenheartedness. It isn't one marked by repentance. And you see what Abraham says next, really speaking on behalf of the Lord. Haven't you read the Bible? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Go to the Hebrew Bible. There you will find all of the revelation that you need. Now understand that this man who is calling on Father Abraham, uh, he would have been someone who had almost certainly been at synagogue every week. Uh, He would have been familiar with the scriptures. He would have heard them taught week in and week out. They had everything that they needed. They had already made their choice. I wonder if there's anyone here today and you might find some uh, correspondence uh, between the, 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 the logic of this man's thinking and your own, that in some respect, perhaps you are waiting for some special revelation. 
that you have been waiting for some clearer impression to be made upon your heart before you will call on the name of the Lord and turn in repentance and faith. Beloved, God has spoken. God has spoken. You lack nothing. Confess your sin today. Come in faith and repentance today. Believe on the one that the scriptures testify to, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that they bear witness to. Put your trust in him. Turn from your sins. He will receive you, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit by which you will call, cry out, Abba, Father. You will be a true son of Abraham. This man continues to protest. He continues to object. One final appeal. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Maybe what they need is a miracle. Maybe what they need is a resurrection. If someone were to come back from the dead, surely they would listen. Give me a sign. Isn't this how we think? If my unbelieving friends could witness the resurrection, if they could witness something remarkable like that, that would get their attention. That would convince them. Then they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Then they would really believe. Jesus can test that. Jesus can test that kind of assertion. He, says to, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's remarkable that the man's name in this story is, wait for it, Lazarus. What happened when Lazarus of Bethany was raised from the dead? A bunch of religious types tried to kill Jesus. Further revelation isn't the problem. A lack of God's gracious self-disclosure isn't the issue. The problem, Jesus says, is a lack of hearing. That's what Christ puts his finger on. The problem isn't a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of miracles. An evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. What mankind needs isn't more light, but new eyes. What we need in the world and in the church today is not more miracles, more power encounters, more signs and wonders, but repentance and faith. And so, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, even if a man were to rise from the dead, they will not be convinced. Of course, if you have read the whole story, you know this to be true. In fact, Luke is writing this after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Men still reject him. Men still refuse to hear. But enough of other men. What about you? What of yourself? There are many ironies in this story, but here's the last. 
Lazarus is not allowed to go back and warn the brothers. But as we read this parable, the rich man warns us. As readers of Luke's gospel, we get to hear the warning and the plea the rich man's brothers never did. Have you listened? Have you heard? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? And are you living not for this life, but for the one that is to come? Lord, help us in this. The Lord, help us to examine our hearts today. Let's bow before the Lord. Lord, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear. Not only Moses and the prophets, but Jesus, who for our sake died and was raised. Lord, we we know what your word says. We know that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We know we have no hope of standing before you apart from your forgiveness, apart from the cleansing that Jesus' blood grants to us, apart from your sovereign declaration of righteous, righteous that comes from, from faith. I thank you, Lord, for your kindness toward us. Lord, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I pray that there would not be anyone who would dare to presume upon the riches of your kindness and forbearance and patience. Lord, teach us all to walk in faith and repentance. I pray, Lord, that it would be obvious in this fellowship that we are living not for this world, that our treasure isn't here, but that our our portion is with the Lord that you would get glory from our lives. Thank you for the hope of everlasting life. Uh, Thank you for the provision that sinners have today, that we can come and we can wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb, or that we can know we will enter that holy city forever to dwell with you. God, I pray that you would impress the word that we have heard on every heart here today for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.